Earlier in the year, I was reading a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, which is a great book. You've read it? It's a good book on the formation of habits and how habits kind of um, run our life, really. Um, and we often don't think about um, how habits work or, or how they really kind of keep us on autopilot or explain the way we do things. And in, um, in this book, he goes through in individuals how, how habits shape us, in businesses how habits form culture, and then he goes into uh, community movements. And he um, shared a story that was really fascinating to me with a different twist than I'd ever heard um, on the civil rights movement. And it was a story of Rosa Parks getting arrested and how Martin Luther King was kind of thrust to the forefront of the civil rights movement. On Thursday, December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white person on a bus. This bus she regularly took home every day from work. She worked in a Montgomery department store. The bus driver pulled over, called the Montgomery police, who took her to the station, booked her, fingerprinted her, and incarcerated her. And she was charged with violating the Alabama bus segregation laws. Bond was posted for Mrs. Parks. She went home, and within a few days on Monday, a bus boycott was organized. The next day, that was Thursday, December 1st, on Friday at 5.30 in the morning, someone called Dr. Martin Luther King's home. He picked up the phone, and they didn't expect, they just started, they went straight into what happened. This is what Rose is going through. And they began to ask him to become the leader of this movement, and he didn't like the spotlight and really shied away and rejected the offer to become their spokesperson. Well, these, I forget who these people were, but they went to his best friend. They convinced his best friend to later convince him. And within a few days, the, uh, I think it's, it was called the MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association, was created. And in no short order, Dr. King became the national spokesperson for the boycott and for the civil rights movement. As you can imagine, and as you know the story, he became the focus of all white hatred. On January 30th, 1956, almost two months after Rosa Parks was arrested, Dr. King was preaching a sermon in his church at First Baptist Church in Montgomery when um, someone placed a bomb on his front porch. And his wife and his uh, newborn daughter were in the house. While preaching, an usher had to bring the news to him on a piece of paper, he read it, stopped mid-sermon, explained to the church what had happened, and immediately rushed home to see if his wife and if his daughter were okay. Nearing his house, Dr. King saw um, blacks brandishing guns and knives and a barricade of white policemen, and you don't have to imagine the tension that would be in the air in that moment. King pushed through, went inside. There was a huge crowd inside of his house. He made his way to the back room, where he found his wife, Greta, and their 10-week-old daughter, Okay. Back in the front room of the house were some white reporters who were trying to leave to file their stories, but they couldn't get out of the house because the house was surrounded by armed, angry blacks who wanted justice. A local witness reported what happened next. Dr. King walked out onto the front porch. He held up his hand for silence, and he tried to still the anger 
by speaking with an exaggerated peacefulness in his voice. Everything was all right, he said. Don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hatred with love. And he gives this speech on his blown-up porch that his wife and daughter were near. It's amazing. The bombing inspired the Montgomery Improvement Association to file a federal suit directly attacking the laws establishing bus segregation. For 13 months, 17,000 black people in Montgomery walked to work or obtained lifts from the small car-owning black population of the city. Eventually, the loss in revenue and a decision by the Supreme Court forced the Montgomery Bus Company to accept integration, and the boycott soon came to an end on December 20th, 1956, one year and three weeks after Rosa Parks was arrested. The success of the boycott became apparent when King and several allies boarded a public bus in front of King's home on December 21st, 1956. Dr. King is one of the greatest and most recent examples we have in our society of what it looks like to be a peacemaker. He tore down walls of hostility, and his means was not through violence or weapons, but his means was with great love, effective communication, and ultimately, self-sacrifice. It is that very pattern that I believe he adopted from Christ, who did the same thing. He made peace. He removed barriers, as Paul says in his epistles, not through violence or war, but through love, through effective communication and teaching, and ultimately with the giving of his life. That's what Christ did for us. We are in the seventh week of the Beatitudes, and this week is Blessed Are the Peacemakers, and it is a message that should hit 100% of us dead center with lots of force, including me. I don't know that any of us ever graduate from needing to be reminded and needing to grow in our understanding, our development, the competency, and just the practice of what it looks like to be makers of peace. You'd have to be living under a rock to not know that our world and our country is increasingly divided. It seems like every day it gets worse. I remember during the 2016 election thinking this is probably as crazy as it gets. I have no idea what this fall will be like, but I know it won't be normal. And unfortunately, we live in a world that day by day is getting more divided and more filled with violence and more filled with disagreement and frustration and anger and it builds and builds and builds and there is a great need for God's people to learn how to stop being peacekeepers, how to repent from being peace 
breakers and to walk in the calling of God's children in being people who know how to make peace. As followers of Christ, 100% of us are called to be peacemakers in two places at least. One, in our community and in our society, and also in our church family, in the church, in the body of Christ. Dr. King's example is one of being a peacemaker in the community. And I know we have a lot of socially woke people in our church who are very passionate about bringing peace in our society. And that is legit. I think... um, My burden for us today is that we need to first learn how to be peacemakers inside of the family of God before we can operate in being peacemakers outside of the family of God. It is really no great witness or testimony trying to make peace in the world if inside of the home of God we can't extend love, acceptance, and forgiveness with our own. At least in the church, there are certain rules and parameters that we all agree to, like mercy and grace and forgiveness. And in the world, those those rules don't necessarily line up and exist. So I would like to kind of narrow the focus to the first importance of being peacemakers, and that's within our faith family. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We will read again the Beatitudes, as is our custom right now. If you want to open the Bible app under locations or events, our notes are there as well. You can follow along whichever way you feel most comfortable. But we will be in uh, Matthew 5. And as we read this, um, I'd like for you to um, pay attention to how the first three are really uh, the emptying of self and how... Um, the three after hunger are the filling of God's character. Matthew 5, verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountains, the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I think that's important to remember that the, the context is that these are followers of Jesus that Christ is teaching. This is not necessarily to the world at large, although we would extend it to them. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. This is the king talking. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for their sin is the context, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Today's focus is verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God or children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he kind of 
unpacks that a little bit more. Blessed are, the, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That doesn't sound fun, but he says we should rejoice and be glad when that happens. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Um, I've shown this uh, image several times. It's the image of an hourglass. Years ago, my counselor gave this to me. I paid a lot of money for it, so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> and he he kind of described a process that I was in, which was he, he, I was depressed and upset and frustrated, and and he uh, said, Drew, you're, you don't need a prescription, which is what I wanted. He said, what you need is to understand that God is trying to empty you of yourself and fill you with his character, and he walked me through for about a year um, these processes of it really emptying the self. When a stomach is empty, the fourth beatitude happens, hunger, pretty automatic. When you're empty, you begin to hunger for something. And the thing that God fills us with is his character, his mercy. He fills us with his purity. He creates a clean heart that we might see him. Lastly, he fills us with everything we need to be just like him. Peacemakers. The sequence from mercy to purity naturally lands at someone who desires to make peace where there is division. John Stott, one of my favorite uh, theologians, I almost fell out of the chair when I read this quote from him. He says, It is the devil who is a troublemaker. And it is God who loves reconciliation and who now through his children as formerly through his only begotten son is bent on making peace. Let that really settle in. A lot of the times God gets the blame for when things go wrong in our life or in our culture. We would do well to remember that it is the devil who is the troublemaker. It is God who literally moved heaven and earth to bring peace and seeks to do that with us. Our um, problem is we live in a world that is bent not on making peace, but on making war. Now, I... um, and not fluent in, um, in gun culture. So I was shocked when I learned this. But if you Google the word peacemaker, you do not see a picture of Jesus or Dr. King. <laughs> I was shocked, but apparently that's a thing. Now, it's, I don't, it's hilarious, but you know, sometimes you, um, you Google things and it says, did you mean... And it's like, did you mean the Bible or blessed or the Beatitudes? I love how the Beatitudes are the third option on Peacemaker and not a bunch of guns. But this should illustrate the problem that we as human beings have is that we think that peacemakers are not Jesus. We think peacemakers involve um, 
severely hurting or ending the life of someone we have a problem with, which is not the way of Jesus. This is the issue that we have. The critical test for the maturity of anyone who says they are followers of Jesus is whether they are foundationally a maker of peace or a breaker of peace. Our Father has gone out of His way to make and provide peace and forgiveness where there was hostility. And when we don't function like that, on a foundational level, we're missing God. I just want to show you uh, about four different scriptures to kind of show you the overview of God's call of peace on our lives. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. We learn in this scripture that we are called to peace or shalom. And the context here is pretty uh, striking. It's in the context of a marriage that's falling apart. Paul says, if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. Now, here's what I want you to focus on, right? For God has called you to live in peace. Just an incredible phrase. Like, kind of, don't get distracted by um, kind of the, the, the divorce language or the separate, but just... Beyond that, God has called you to live in a state of shalom, peace, tranquility. That is God's will for you, is that you would live in peace. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, we learn that we should actively pursue peace. It, um, it, it echoes the sentiment of the call to worship we read this morning. Uh, Peter says, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. In Hebrews chapter 12, we learn we should strive for peace with everybody. Work at living in peace with everyone. Remember that this November. Work at living a holy life. And for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Now, we know it's impossible to live at peace with everyone, but the writer of Hebrews says we should at least try. This is echoed in Romans chapter 12, when Paul says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a heartbreaking verse because the reality is um, you can and should do everything in your power to live at peace with somebody. But there are, unfortunately, cases when that other person does not echo the same sentiment and is not willing to do everything that they can to live at peace. And there are times where you have to walk away from people. But it should not be you walk away from people because you only did 50%. It it should be after doing 100%, doing everything you can, if it's just impossible at that moment, Walk away because that's the only way for peace in your life. I'd like for you to um, take an honest assessment of where you are today. And this might be painful, but this is church. It's a safe place. There's no judging. Are you, by nature, a peacekeeper? 
a peace breaker, or what Christ is calling us to, a peacemaker. Our kind of unofficial motto here is it's okay to not be okay, just don't lie about it and don't stay there. I encourage you to be honest on which category you tend to fall in. Uh, Winky Prattney says, there is a vast difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. Peacekeepers will let anything go to avoid rocking the boat. Only fragile relationships result. Peacemakers, on the other hand, are willing to confront at the risk of being misunderstood. Knowing that in confronting the situation that caused the rift, peace and unity may be truly restored. As they resolve and work through problems, growth occurs, character develops, resulting in right, lasting relationships between people. Blessed are the peacemakers, and by God's grace, what a blessing they are to others. I hope you understand the difference between keeping peace by walking on eggshells or being a doormat and actually doing the hard work that involves speaking truth and love, asking questions, being courageous, refusing to be manipulated, refusing to manipulate. Peacemaking is hard work. When you look at the teachings of the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus and subsequently his apostles, we walk away with it's pretty clear that Christians shouldn't just be peacemakers, but we should never really seek out conflict for conflict's sake, nor should we be the ones responsible for conflict. The reality is that's often not our experience and it's often not our default nature. Um, I think our experience proves this. You don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have been significantly hurt, wounded, let down by either a Christian or by a Christian leader or a pastor in the realm of they didn't know how to make peace when there was conflict. It's costly business. There are um, at least two obstacles that stand in the way to being godly peacemakers, and I'd like to invite you to consider which one or both, <laughs> are your primary obstacles. The first one is insecurity, and the second one is individualism. First, when we are insecure in who we are or who we are in Christ, and we don't understand that we are Christ and Christ alone, and that there is nothing that we could ever do to earn more of God's love, when our identity is just secure by God's grace, we're secure. When we don't have that really settled, we get touchy. We, we become overly sensitive. There are miles of eggshells all around us that people have to navigate like a landmine. 
Is this you? Do you get offended easily? Do you get easily irritated? Do you get quickly offended over even little things? Do you hear eggshells cracking most of the time around you? If so, it's okay. You should just know that insecurity is what is causing that. And it's a huge barrier to being able to live at peace truly with people. The second one is individualism. Signs of individualism are pride, arrogance, ingratitude, being unteachable, thinking you know it all. I'm sure there's way more, but these are two I often see in myself and in the church world. When insecurity and individualism run high, it's very difficult to to live in a state of peace. Uh, Early on in my ministry, uh, the pastor that was training me, he told me something, and I didn't believe it. He told me, if you want to know someone's level of maturity and health in Christ, do not look at their age, how old they are. Do not look at how long they've been in church. Do not look at how much Bible they know or how much they give or how much they attend church. All you need to know to see where someone's true maturity in Christ is, is look at how they respond when there's conflict. Because that will tell you the state of their emotional and spiritual understanding and growth in operating like Christ. When a child, when, it, when, a, when a baby is upset, <laughs> when a baby has been crossed, <laughs> or hasn't been fed, <laughs> right? What do they do? They scream and cry and wail, and that's, that's fine. That's what babies do. That's it, right? When a young child is crossed, <laughs> there's a tantrum, right? There's, there's no reasoning with, with a toddler. It's, I would always, it's like a bad joke, but I would always tell Shari, I, I feel like I could negotiate with a terrorist more successfully than with my toddler. <laughs> there just is no reasoning when a toddler is upset. When a teenager or an adolescent is upset, what do they do? They might stand there and listen, but they're red-faced, they say whatever, and then they run away from you, slam the door, and go talk to all their friends about how awful the other person is. Unfortunately, this is what most Christians do. They would rather go to Facebook or go to their friends and talk to everyone else about the issue than the person they have the issue with. Honestly, most of the Christians I've met are spiritually adolescent. They function like a 14, 15-year-old who's upset. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to get mad and slam the door and tell everyone about it. Then there's what... Mature, healthy adults do. They sit down with a cup of coffee and they figure it out and they listen to each other and they ask questions and they, they gain um, uh, what, what's, what some people call a center pool of understanding. Is they look to find, okay, what do we have in common and what can we build on that? And they're willing to be wrong. They're willing to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. So I'd like to um, give a little bit of practical things, because this uh, I don't know that anyone here is like, I disagree, we should go to war. <laughs> There's the door, by the way. It's, 
not the teachings of Jesus. I'd like to give some practical um, things that I've had to learn, some of them, most of them the hard way. And perhaps one of them lands where you are right now, and it can be a step forward in um, taking the teachings of Jesus and putting it into practice. So I first want to give a little instruction on um, some tips on how to give a challenge or a confrontation. Or if you're in a situation where in order to make peace, you're going to have to have some communication. There is a very wise and godly way to have that communication, and there's a very unwise way. I'd like to give some tips on if you find yourself, when you find yourself today or this week, having to have a hard conversation with somebody, here's, here's some things I think you should do. This is obvious, but it's often left undone. First, you should pray. You should pray and fast. I don't like fasting. I know by the looks of it, you probably don't believe that. I like to eat. I do not enjoy fasting. But in the most crucial situations, fasting helps. Uh, An old friend of mine, he's fond of saying, you should never rebuke somebody that you haven't wept for. And I just say, if you've got a problem with someone and you haven't gotten on your knees and prayed for them, you have no business speaking the truth and love to them because you probably don't love them yet. And so you should start there. Do you love this person more than lunch? And can you get on your knees and pray for their blessing? And when you do that, you are well on your way to being a peacemaker. Second, you should know the text of Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 very well. If you do not know Matthew 18 or Galatians 6, you should write that on your hand with a Sharpie right now. If you need one, we can find one for you. These are two texts of the New Testament that every follower of Jesus should know. Matthew 18 is Jesus' pattern for how to resolve conflict. Galatians 6 is Paul's encouragement on how you go about doing that. The goals are to be gentle and gain a brother or sister, not to be right. If you've never studied Matthew 18, Galatians 6, perhaps that is a next step for you. Third, consider the right time for the person that you need to make peace with. For example, if you are offended or someone has transgressed against you and that person is a new mom with an infant that is three months old, Thursday at 7.30 p.m. is probably not the time to schedule a conversation with this person because they are at the end of their resources at the end of the week, at the end of the day, right? So it, it, this is hard, but you really need to figure out not, not just when is best for you to unload on someone, but when, when would be a good time for this person? And maybe you let them choose and you ask them, when can we meet? Um, fourth, Avoid accusation by listening deeply. Often, a lot of our problems that we have are assumptions that are based on assumptions that are based on other assumptions. And when we enter a situation and we're not 
asking, help me understand what you thought when you said this. It can go bad. Uh, the, the, the phrase I like on this is, be a student before you're a critic. We live in a world where it is really easy to be a critic and not a student. I've got a, a great, sad story on this. Um, maybe about 11 years ago, um, there was a man in um, the congregation that I was serving at, and I had um, quoted a line from Rick Warren, which apparently was heresy. It wasn't. But I quoted a line from The Purpose Driven Life. And this um, uh, older man in our church was very angry that the church that he had chosen to go to would quote someone like Rick Warren. And so he wanted to meet to talk about it. And so me and my pastor met with him. And for like 30 minutes, he was just vomiting on how Rick Warren's a false prophet and he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, which I've never met the man, but I don't think that. And just on and on, and he was just tearing this, the book apart, which is one of the best-selling books of all time. And uh, I don't know if this was um, the Holy Spirit, but I just, I like, halfway through the meeting, I just said, this person's name said, have you, I'm just going to make sure, have you read The Purpose Driven Life? And he said, well, no, I've not read it, but I was like, oh, we've been talking for 30 minutes about all the problems you have with a book you haven't read. The point is, be a student before you're a critic. Fifth, um, if you are in a space where you need to either challenge someone, admonish offer a correction, whatever, however you want to phrase it. Um, Do this. Offer it. Share it. Don't force it. It is much better to say, hey, I feel this, I see this, I want to offer it to you and ask you to consider it and discern it, than to say, you did this, 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 and just vomit on them. It's probably not going to go well. Take it from me. Last, and this is kind of the, uh, you got to say it, but the scriptures teach that there are at least three types of people you should not engage with. Proverbs 9, verse 8 says, scoffers don't even try to correct or challenge or make peace with a scoffer. It'll just hurt you. Titus 3.10 says, those who are self-deceived heretics, people who um, think they know theology well, but are actually committing heresy. Don't even, don't even try. And Matthew 15, 14 says, those who are extremely self-righteous, it's just not going to work out. So it's kind of interesting that the scripture says, yeah, but then there's these three types of people that you should just not even, it's not even worth your time. Just pray for them. All right, next, this is the hardest. This is, you thought that was hard, that wasn't hard. The next part's hard. How do you receive challenge when someone comes to you? Here's the deal. 100% of us, me included, are going to do something, say something, think something, accidentally do something, or do something on purpose that is going to require a brother or sister in Christ to come and say, hey, I'm not so sure about that. How do you receive that? Very 
simply right now in this moment. You need to recognize which barrier you are predisposed to. Is it insecurity, independence, or both? Because in that moment when someone comes to you and says, hey, brother, sister, we need to talk. If you have an independent spirit or if you have pride and arrogance or if you have an insecurity, it will flare up in an instant. And if you know which one it is now, it might help you recognize it. The second thing, would I just say, humble yourself and take on the posture of a student because that's what we all are. We are students of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. We are apprentices of Jesus. And we are constantly in the state of learning to be less like ourselves and more like him. And so we need iron to sharpen iron. Third, don't immediately dismiss someone who is trying to make peace, especially if you don't like them. This is one error a lot of Christians make is they don't like the person, and so they write them quickly off because, well, they're not my friend. I think that you should not ask, who is this coming from? You should instead ask, is this true, and do I need to hear it? Because most of the time, and I hate it, I, hate, I don't know how to say it softly, so on the front end, forgive me. A lot of our friends are cowards. And they don't want to say the thing that we desperately need to hear because they don't want to lose the friendship. And if that's true, Perhaps some of the only people who will come and tell you the things you need to hear are those that you don't like, or, or better, your enemies. I struggled with this. I had somebody one time that I did not like, and they kept bringing this thing to me, and I quickly dismissed it because they're an idiot, and that's why I don't like them, because they're an idiot, and I know better. And I was really struggling with this, and the, the older woman who was discipling me, her name is Marianne, she was in her 70s, and she said, Drew, I want you to take what this person said and write it on a post-it note and stick it to, like, the end of your sleeve and go about your day. She's speaking metaphorically here. And she said, if at the end of the day it's still sticking to you, you need to hear it. And so now when, 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 when people share things with me that I don't want to hear. Instead of immediately dismissing it, I write it down on a post-it note proverbially. And if at the end of the day it's still sticking to me, I'm like, all right, Lord, maybe I need to hear this. Maybe we need to talk about this. A.W. Tozer wrote a great book, one of my favorites, called The Knowledge of the... Not The Knowledge of the Holy, that's a good one. The Root of the Righteous is the one I really like. And in, in it, I think it's chapter three, he does a chapter... On, on, it's called On Receiving Admonition. The very end of the chapter is so great. He's talking about all this. And he says, quote, All the great saints knew how to take correction. Maybe that is one reason why they were great saints. Now listen, I don't like taking correction. I don't like giving correction. But it is a way that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us and sanctify us. There's a couple of five, there's like five ways that we often receive this really quickly. The Holy Scripture, 
the Spirit checking us, sometimes chastisement, sometimes if we do, when we do something really, really bad, God will allow others to discipline us for correction that happens. Fourth, enemies. Like I said, um, enemies aren't, are in, if you have an enemy, they're not motivated by sympathy. So they'll often tell you the truth, where your friends might only tell you 90% of the truth because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Enemies don't care about that. And so if your enemies have something to bring against you, you might, should consider. They're not always right, but you should always consider it. Last, people in authority, your teachers, if you're in school, civic leaders, bosses. I hope this doesn't sound self-serving, but sometimes pastors have to do this. I don't like doing it, but sometimes I have to do it as part of my job. It's a fun sermon to preach, for sure. (laughs) Here's the good news. This is great. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, I know this is like a really practical rubber meets the road sermon, but the reality is on the cosmic level, we have all transgressed against God. We have all been enemies of God, as Paul says. We have all found ourselves. The image is aliens, refugees, illegal aliens to the kingdom of heaven. And that Christ broke down the wall of hostility by, the, by his blood on the cross, making peace with us and God. He is the greatest peacemaker. And we should be like him. And it is hard. And it's not fun. But it is godly. As I close, I want to throw um, five questions your way to try to push you into this. Uh, first, in this body of Christ... How do you mostly function? As a keeper, walking on eggshells, doing everything you can to not rock the boat? As a breaker of peace, being the source of trouble? And I don't, I'm not thinking of any of you, by the way. There's nobody I'm like, I'm just, this is purely just, you know, no one's in my mind, except for, I'm just kidding, not you. <laughs> I do not know of any major things, so I, I, I claim innocence here. Or are you a maker of peace? Are you someone who understands the body is knit together and that we should love one another, bear one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, help the weak, help the offended, help the afflicted? A lot of you do that. Keep doing it. Number two, are you holding on to any insecurities or individualism that keep you from being a godly peacemaker? I know just in doing this, the Lord has shown me several that I need to um, confess and repent of. Third, do you willingly give and receive challenge or admonishment or teaching or correction? And if not, why? I don't. I actually don't like giving challenge to people and I'm, uh, because I don't want to upset the person. Because 
I'm constantly looking for your approval. And that's where I have to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to get to a place where I can have the hard conversations and it not bother uh, my identity. We all have these. Um, is there, fourth, is there anyone that the Lord is bringing to your mind right now that you need to apologize to? That you need to take out to lunch and say, hey, let's make peace. Is there anyone that you need to receive an apology from and the Lord is calling you to soften your heart to be in a place where you can actually release and forgive and walk towards peace? Yes, 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 and yes. Is there a situation right now that the Holy Spirit is shining light on where he's saying he wants you to be a peacemaker? Welcome to church. Let's um, pray. We're going to end our time at the table and encourage you to um, use our remaining time to press into whatever the Lord is saying to you in this moment. Jesus, we remember that you are the greatest example of a maker of peace someone who was secure enough in their identity with the Father and humble enough to do the hard thing, to speak the truth, but to also do it in a manner that was gracious and loving and gentle. Lord, help us to learn from your example. Lord, I pray for just a deliverance from the traps of the enemy that keep us paralyzed from being agents of reconciliation. Lord, where there is significant trespass or hurt or trauma, I ask that you would come and pour out your living water. Pour out the anointing power of the Spirit to heal. The wounds that are significant. And even the ones that are kind of small and might seem insignificant. God, we lament that our culture in our world, in our country, in our governance system, in our races and our cultures and our preferences are often at war against one another for whatever reason. And God, we know that just as you called people like Dr. King to bring the peace of Jesus in places of division and violence and hatred. God, I pray you would do that here. But that, God, it would be an overflow of a, a deep, 
body of Christ that knows how to love and isn't afraid to love fully. God, I ask that you would deliver us from our insecurities. Deliver us from our independence. Deliver us from opinions and preferences that just don't matter. God, we invite you to break our hearts for the things that break your heart. We want to be your sons and daughters. We want to be known for being your kids. God, when people look at us, we want them to be reminded of the God of love who is the great peacemaker, the prince of peace. God, we can't do it. We can't achieve it. We just give you permission and access into our lives, to this church, to make us even more greater people of peace, in love, in truth, in courage. God, I ask you to give us everything we need internally to be the peacemakers that you've called us to be. When it gets tough, Lord, help us to stay the course, to not freak out, to not give up.